Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining us today. You know, every day now, it seems we get a little bit, or maybe a lot, of good news about the economy. And particularly, that's true when we talk about the U.S. economy. Vaccinations are getting done, things are opening up, and there seems to be the beginning of a hiring boom taking shape. So it's all good news. But in the midst of all that optimism, it can be hard to see that there's another issue afoot, and that's the issue of long-term unemployment. Because basically, even though there's quite a bit of hiring and the unemployment rate's falling, there's a core of people who've been out of the labor market for a while and who are not being absorbed back into it with the upswing in the economy. So it's a major problem, and the one that may not go away as easily as we would like. I want to talk about all of that, and I want to talk about whether there's policy fixes around it. And to do that, I am going to be joined today by Ofer Sharon. He's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and he's an expert on this phenomenon, not from the economics point of view necessarily. He doesn't come at it perhaps the way I would or uh, other people in economics would, but what he's done is interview people, kind of one-on-one to talk about different experiences and and put it together. So he's got some really interesting thoughts on the big picture, how we should interpret some of the numbers. Uh, It's a really timely discussion. Please stay with us. Well, how much of a problem is long-term unemployment, and is there a way to fix that problem? My guest today is Ofer Sharon. He is an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and he thinks we're in a crisis situation, but there may be a way out. Thank you so much for joining us, Ofer. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be with you. Where are you this morning? I'm in my home in Amherst, which is my teaching uh, and research and everything else happens from right here during COVID. Yes, I guess that is the thing for a lot of people right now. (laughs) You know what, before we even get into the subject, which is really interesting, I want to ask you about your own career, because people often end up not where they plan to be when they were younger. How did you end up looking at this problem and doing what you're doing? Interesting. Yeah, I actually had a a prior career as a lawyer uh, before I became an academic, and I was uh, a very unhappy lawyer. In fact, many of the people around me were unhappy lawyers, but they... uh, really chose to work extremely long hours. Uh, I became interested in why people were giving most of their waking lives to a job they didn't appreciate or like. So I quit and pursued a a PhD in sociology to look at that question of long work hours, particularly for professionals who can make other choices. Um, It was right around the dot-com era. I did talk to a lot of overworked engineers But then the dot-com era bubble burst, and a lot of people that I met um, thought, you know, that their career was set, you know, maybe worry about work-life balance, but not worry about getting a job. These people went to college, had successful careers, and here they were finding themselves midlife um, out of a job or fearing that they were going to lose their job tomorrow. That's not what they thought they signed up for, and I was surprised to learn how many people who seem to have done, you know, quote unquote, all the right things, found themselves unemployed. And I became really interested in, in, in that issue. It's interesting you mentioned being a lawyer. 
like everyone else, I looked at it. And the summer before I went to law school, I talked to a lot of lawyers and 201, they were so unhappy. <laughs> it seemed like they picked this and they were really unhappy with the career choice. So I went a different way also. Um, you know, in terms of the employment figures and the unemployment issue, I've looked at it for many years from the vantage point of being an economist. So working in finance institutions and government, whatever. As you say, you came at it at a really different angle, right? It wasn't about the numbers necessarily. Now, I, I focus on people's experience. So my research uh, is done through in-depth interviews where I sit down with people these days over Zoom uh, and ask them to describe their experience, uh, trying to get a job, what happens when you try to network, what's going on in your social life, your marriage, uh, how are you doing emotionally, what do you find helpful? So it's based on these conversations that I do my research. Um, though I have to say at this point, the numbers are important. We have mm -hmm. to pay attention to the fact that uh, we have a huge number of people who are long-term unemployed. It's 43% uh, right now of all the unemployed people are long-term unemployed. Um, it's not getting a lot of coverage in the media, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's over 4 million people. Yeah. And you're talking about the U.S. I'm in Canada and I look at other countries, too. And I do think it gets lost in the stats because we see the unemployment rate going down in so many countries. Looks like things are getting better. And then you miss the fact that there's a core of people who are having a hard time getting back in. Exactly. Yeah. I haven't looked at the numbers for Canada. In the U.S., the, the overall unemployment rate is going down. So the sense is that the you know, everything is back to normal or getting back to normal. And that really overlooks the fact that um, we have uh, millions of people who are stuck with no job. And we know from historical uh, patterns that those people then might get stuck for a long time, that um, it, it often becomes harder and harder to get back into a good job. Now, this goes back a long way for you. You started studying this, what, 15 years ago, before the 2008-2009 recession? Right. I, I studied this really um, after the dot-com bubble burst in, in Silicon Valley uh, when I was doing, when I was a grad student in Berkeley. By the time I graduated uh, with my PhD, um, we were in a new crisis. So, um, I, in a way, I was lucky, you know, for someone who studies unemployment, uh, you never want to see unemployment, but um, your topic becomes hot when there's a recession. And so I, I had studied, um, my original study of unemployment was, was during the dot-com bubble, not knowing that, of course, in 2008, nine, we're going to have this huge new crisis, um, which then led to another round of research around long-term unemployment. Uh, my original research was comparing the experience in Israel and the United States, um, finding that um, Americans tend to blame themselves, particularly white-collar professionals, that they tend to feel like something is wrong with me when I'm not finding a job. And this was not the case for Israelis, who are otherwise really similar, same types of jobs, same career stage. Um, that that was that question really interested me at first and was the subject of my first book. So when you look at the roots of this, I mean, I'm sure they change with every cycle a little bit, but I know there's some themes you, you come up with again, you come up against again and again. One is age bias, right? 
And again, I get that gets some coverage, but perhaps not as much as it should right now. It should get a lot more coverage. Um, so age bias is is, is an under uh, reported, under discussed, but really important phenomenon. And and we know um, that it's widespread from not like not studies like mine, but people who do audit studies where they send out, so these are researchers who do a completely different kind of research, but really important. They send out resumes that are fake, but to really, um, mm. to real job openings. So as an economist, you know about these kind of studies. Um, and here we are seeing real employers' reactions to resumes that are otherwise identical in terms of the credentials and skills and everything else that should matter, um, but they only vary the age or maybe the year in which you graduated college, some indicator of age. Um, and there's a very consistent pattern that with each decade of age, the likelihood of getting a response, a call back to an interview is less and less. And, um, and when I, I uh, as part of my research, I do talk to recruiters and HR and um, they are pretty open with the kind of biases they have around age. Um, and and it, it becomes a very difficult trap for, for job seekers who are older um, to get over that initial negative reaction due to older age. Okay, you say biases, but I'm sure they would say they're, they're not discriminating. They'd say, what, this person is overqualified or may not have the energy or how do they qualify it? Yeah, um, so they, the, the energy is, is definitely a, a perception. They also sometimes worry with older workers that they would be um, not hang around for as long, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which actually we have good research showing it's the other way around, that the, the, the 30-year-olds are most likely to job hop and want to you know, use one job to leverage the other in the next job, whereas the older job seeker tends to stay. Um, and, and, and stay longer. So these are uh, biased perceptions that are not, um, not borne out in research. Now, the overqualified is an, is, is a, is an interesting and, and related problem. Mm -hmm. Here, here's how it usually plays out. So someone particularly who's been successful in their career uh, loses their job, the most typical first thing you do is you look for a similar job to the one you had, similar uh, level. But if you are successful, then you typically were at a job that is very, very competitive. There's not a lot of these, there's a lot uh, less high-level jobs than there are middle-level jobs. So it happens that, you know, you can go months and not get a, uh, the kind of job you had before. And so now you step back and think, all right, I need to be more strategic. I'm going to apply to a broader range of jobs, you know, including jobs that maybe I did a few years back, uh, but which, you know, I'm super qualified for. Uh, at that point, you realize that there's this other trap of being perceived as overqualified here. The potential employer looks at you and says, yeah, of course you can do this job, but how much money are you going to want? And will you be happy? Will you stay? Will you be looking to leave uh, immediately as soon as another better job opens up? Um, 
the job seekers I talk to in this trap say they can't figure out a good way to communicate to the employer. No, I would be happy at, at you know, at this stage of my career, I'm completely fine uh, with, with that contributor role. Um, but there's no easy way to communicate that. The, 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 the easy thing for employers is just to exclude someone that looks overqualified systematically. And that's what tends to happen. Um, so you are in this trap of you, there's few jobs like the ones you had where there's more jobs, you're overqualified. And then you may try to change jobs. So that's another way to avoid being overqualified. Well, I'll take my transferable skills, but then you're excluded for not having uh, enough qualifications. So you could be overqualified for some kind of jobs, underqualified for others. And, uh, that's that becomes a real trap if you add that to the age issue um it's tough to get out of yeah i wonder about that part of it because post pandemic i think a lot of people are going to be rethinking what they want to do maybe want to change fields how easy is that going to be are employers open to somebody coming in mid career boy um it's hard I think particularly with, with large companies, um, the companies that, that if they're getting 300 applicants uh, for their job openings, which is the case for um, the large well-known companies, I think it's gonna to be tough to break through in those kind of cases. Uh, a career switch I think is, is more plausible with a smaller, uh, smaller business, someone that, um, is not getting hundreds of resumes, but potentially you could um, make a more direct connection to present your case, why you actually have what it takes, even though you don't have background in that specific field, but you've done things that are similar and maybe play it up as an advantage because you're bringing um, maybe a unique vantage point to the field from whatever you were doing before that could, could be a strength if someone is actually willing to sit and, and consider that perspective. So it'll be interesting, you know, how this goes the next little while, because it seems like in the U.S. particularly, there's a huge hiring binge going on. Companies are saying it's hard to find the people we want. How do you reconcile that with the fact that you still think that there's 300 resumes showing up for some jobs? Well, look, we, we know that there are these 4 million people who have been looking for work for more than six months. So there are lots of people out there. Uh, now, employers in some cases are saying, I can't find anyone who wants to do the job uh, when they're offering perhaps a little over minimum wage. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Um, you know, at, 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 at the higher level jobs, they also, the employer may be looking for some kind of unicorn, some kind of like person that, that, that meets just, uh, a level of criteria that, that is really rare to find, right? So I think there are a lot of um, a lot of workers out there looking for work. We know that. Uh, if employers are saying nobody's applying, I would ask the employer what kind of um, what kind of compensation are you offering, and how realistic are you being, and what kind of worker you might find. Yeah, and then there's the issue of unemployment bias. Now you've written about this. We used to say you have to look for a job while you still have a job. Is that still as prevalent as it used to be? We think so. Um, so there, the, there was a wave of research on this after the Great Recession. And this is 
again, done through audit studies where instead of age, this time what you're manipulating is how much time people have been out of work. And the data came back very consistently. If you're out of work, six months or longer particularly, your rates for callback are less than 50%. Uh, and it was important, I think, that this was after the Great Recession because people thought, look, the Great Recession was the seismic event that, that everyone knew the economy just went through the worst blow since the Great Depression. So maybe this time around, uh, employers will be more understanding of someone having a gap. We all knew that it was a, you know, a financial crisis, not attributable to any one person's individual shortcomings. So the fact that we saw that discrimination against someone unemployed after the Great Recession scares me to think that we're likely going to see the same thing happen now, even though, again, there was a pandemic, there's a good, really good reason that should be obvious to any employer why someone would be, you know, six months out of work in the midst of COVID-19. But the historical record is not good uh, in terms of employer discrimination against someone unemployed. Having spoken to as many people as you've spoken to, obviously some of them are successful. You've spoken to career counselors and recruiters. Is there a way for people to break out of this? So this is going to sound so that yes, uh, there are, uh, and and you know the people I study, uh, I would say half or maybe slightly more than half end up back in in good professional jobs. Um, so there are ways. I think one of the key things is to uh, recognize it might take a long time to keep going. Uh, you're not going to get a job if you don't apply. And the other thing, which sounds cliche, and it is cliche. Uh, but to think about the use of networks. So here's the thing about networks. Um, it's really easy to say, go out there and network. We hear it, but there is a logic to that advice. The logic is, and the reason it can be effective is that if the barrier are, is all kinds of employer biases against someone who's unemployed, against someone who may be older, um, Networks are probably the most effective and likely way to pierce through that biased perception, right? If someone comes up to the employer, to the hiring manager and says, hey, look, I know Diane, I know Joe, I worked with them, and they would be excellent for this job, that becomes the more salient piece of information. And that can easily trump any biases that are conscious or unconscious around age or unemployment. So that's why it is effective, but it doesn't make it easy, right? <laughs> so the idea that just got there and network really overlooks that it's super hard to do, especially when as you get to be long-term unemployed. So a lot of people I talk to will say, yeah, sure, right after I lost my job, right after the layoff, it was relatively easy to reach out to my ex-colleagues and say, you know, do you know of any openings to try to get ref uh, help with referrals? But you have a finite number of ex-colleagues that you have that kind of relationship with. And then as time goes on, now it's six months, maybe eight months, um, you find yourself repeatedly going back to ask for support. And over time, it becomes less and less comfortable. Um, there is a, the stigma of unemployment 
is not only something that affects recruiters, it could also, um, also affect the people in your network, right? And then it can get internalized. So you might start to feel more and more self-conscious, like, why don't I have a job yet? Um, and if you start feeling like maybe it's something about you, you're less comfortable reaching out to others. So all these factors make it more and more difficult. Um, you know, and, and maybe perhaps the most obvious factor with networking is that the best networking happens spontaneously. It happens when you're in your professional life yeah. working and you're, you know, you're dealing with a customer or a client or a supplier, some kind of uh, real-life work interaction. And, and um, this is where you can dazzle with your capacities, right? And when you're unemployed, um, you don't have that natural setting and requires um, uh, more uh, reaching out in a less spontaneous way, and it's harder to do. What else would you say would help this? Is there a policy response? Is there something more institutional? Or is it really on the individual? No. Um, policy response first should, should be to, to recognize that it's very tough uh, to get a job and it may take a long time, which means that we should be very generous and unemployment benefits, um, and and beyond the end of the whatever recession we're in. So the policy tends to be that during recessions, like even right now, there is enhanced unemployment benefits, and it's um, and that's the right policy response. My fear is that that will go away way before. Um, way before we needed to, uh, you know. So I think. In the Great Recession, we stopped having um, extended unemployment support when we were still at really high levels of long-term unemployment. So that, that's one fear. People need that basic financial support um, because most people live, uh, depend on their income for daily life. We, we, we don't have a lot of people with huge amounts of savings. Um, Secondly, so that's one level of support. The other thing I would say at the more individual level, but there can also be a, a policy angle to this, is don't try to do it alone. For a job seeker who's unemployed, um, it, life becomes, uh, the, the whole process is much more difficult if you're isolated. So if you're isolated, you tend to um, own, your only experience is that you're applying for jobs and you're getting rejections though. The main experience is just no, 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 no. Um, and you feel like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, why is everyone saying no to me? And you know, around me, I see my neighbors and they have jobs and I'm just home alone, not working. That is a terrible um, uh, situation to be in. You're not, um, it's much. It's very, very helpful to be with others who are in the same boat, because there's millions of others who are in the same boat, and to realize that you're not alone, that this is something that's that's structural. This is something about the economy. It's about how employers uh, are doing hiring, and when you can feel that this is not personally about you, but about larger forces. Um, then you have the the energy and the kind of the mental well-being to continue in, in a more effective way 
um, being with others, you can provide support to each other, hold up, you know, a, a, a mirror to each other of like, look, here are your strengths, here are um, all your accomplishments. You are a very qualified professional worker. Um, so that kind of uh, mutual support is very, very helpful from peers. Well, let's see what happens after this cycle. I don't want to say ends, but after we get to the upward part of the cycle and things look like they're booming, I'm hoping you're wrong about uh, it being the Me same too. as 2008, 2009. Unfortunately, perhaps you're right. Oh, first, thanks so much for talking to us today. Oh, Linda, it was my pleasure. Thank you for, for your attention to this issue. Ofer Sharon is an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to learn more about Ofer and his work, please check out our show notes. You're going to find some links there. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, please take a moment, leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll really help people to find us. It helps us continue these discussions around the future of work. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stoke the Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production. 